Seven. Welcome to Highway Diary. I'm your host, Eric Hollerbach. This is Highway Diary, episode 397 with Devin Murphy, who I've known for 20 <laughs> years, I think, or just yeah, about just that. About, right? Maybe a little shy. I went to new school when I was 20, so I guess uh, 18 years. Um, anyway, um, so you texted me out of the blue that uh, you're thinking about moving in New Orleans, but now you're living in Hawaii. You say off grid. What's going on? Are you hiding from the government? You know, <laughs> you know too much. You see an alien get buried and then, you know, now they're off after you. What's going on? Yeah, Um uh kind of just ran away uh went through like some crazy stuff with health and things like that my work in like 2021 and uh was uh my ex and i split up and so i was just traveling around like living on the road um staying in hotels and motels and stuff and uh crashing on people's couches and i came out here to visit a friend i've had for 25 years now um and uh she had like a cottage on her property and she was like hey you should come out and stay here for a little bit and i came out and i'm on the big island down in puna which is like the rainforest area and uh yeah i love it out here um it's been uh over two years like two and a half years now i've been here oh wow uh so you know you needed to just de-stress i mean i'm on this hamster yeah. wheel <laughs> in, in the big concrete jungle here in austin texas the second i feel like i got my bill squared away something else happens it's it doesn't end uh i think the system is designed to harvest uh vampires to harvest our energy i'm sorry bankers um what's the difference <laughs> um yeah so i i uh, feel that um i had my friend uh, craig pasta jardula on who made this whole documentary about maui and uh, the aftermath and it seems like the bankers first came in and they're like, we kind of want to buy your property. And the locals are like, no. And it's also a special zone for like historical land type of thing. And all the all the homes that seem to have been uh, had this historical rights uh, were suddenly deleted, almost like a tattoo gun from the sky. There's there people think it's directed energy weapons. People think it's the government who started the fire so that the banks can swallow up these properties. Have you been hearing about this conspiracy? What have you been he hearing about the Maui fires? Yeah, it's funny. I hear more uh, when I go to the mainland for work or to visit people. Uh, I hear more people in the mainland talking about the Maui fires than than out here. Out here, um, you know, there's been a lot of efforts for like fundraising and, and figuring out housing and and what can be done for the people in Maui. Uh, but, um, yeah, I go back, I was in LA for work and I had like two different Uber drivers pick me up and talk about energy weapons, <laughs> starting fires in Maui. Uh, I know that's the conspiracy theory right now, uh, space lasers, right? Energy weapons. I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, you look at like our public infrastructure, you look at the way things are funded right now. Everything's been privatized in like the last 40 years. Um, it seems like there's just, uh, it, it, it seems I was there. We had fires on the Big Island also. Uh, Kohala, North and South Kohala were, were both on fire at that time. Uh, it was super dry. We had what we call a Kona low coming in, which uh, basically the trade winds usually blow, you know, and hit us on the east side where we are. Kona low, the winds start coming from the other side. It causes really dry conditions. Uh, it, to me, it seemed just much more like, you know, mismanagement by electrical company um and that's just my my take from reading everything i have and talking to people is that you know it 
our infrastructure is not in the best shape. Uh, I think some power lines went down, started a fire, and then everyone was very slow to act. And I think uh, we're not very well equipped. If we've seen in the last few years, we're dealing with uh, public emergencies. And, uh, you know, I from what I've heard, Helco, Hawaii Electric Company, had to decide if they wanted to turn the power off or leave it on while the power line was still, you know, flipping about. And they left it on because that keeps the pumps working for the water. Um, so that's, you know, I guess the decision they had to make. I think, regardless, there's always the threat of disaster capitalism. I mean, same thing with talking about New Orleans, you know, after Katrina and all the privatiz privatization that happened there, uh, especially with schools and, and hospitals and things. Uh, I don't think capitalism ever misses a chance to take advantage of a bad situation for people and, and extort it for more money. And so I think that's definitely happening in Maui. And I think, you know, the struggle right now between housing people, you know, short-term vacation units, where, where are we going to put everyone uh, mixed with the fact that like you just go up, you know, four miles from Lahaina and that's just all resorts. It's just a boardwalk of resorts and, uh, hotels, you know, catering to tourism, taking money out, you know, of the islands, they're all national chains. I think, um, when it comes to Maui, I honestly think it, it was just bad infrastructure poor oversight and, and response to what was happening there. And as a result, uh, a lot of people's, you know, dreams can come true. I mean, it's the same thing we see over and over again, you know, with 9-11 or, like I said, Hurricane Katrina or any sort of uh, opportunity for private, you know, to swoop in there and, and gobble up stuff. Uh, they, they seem to take it. I don't know. I, you know, Naomi Klein wrote a good book called, uh, was it Disaster Capital? No. And now I'm blanking out because I read it a few years ago. But she goes into that. She goes into how, you know, after we invaded Iraq and Afghanistan, we privatized like, I think it's like 70% of, of you know, uh, what we're doing with the military, uh, the army and like ground forces. Everything's going you know, towards mercenaries and we're fighting proxy wars. And, you know, it seems like the money is always the answer. I don't know if you need special weapons to, you know, construct a disaster when, I think our, our environment right now is primed for disasters at every turn. And you let uh, you let one go off, you respond to it poorly, and then you can gobble up from the wreckage like vultures. And I think that's where we're on the same page when it comes to the financial industry. And, uh, you know, especially with, with BlackRock or what is it now, like Safe Home or whatever they rebranded to with their clear channel joke. Yeah. You uh, know, it's funny. There's a place called me or something. There's a place called BlackRock Coffee. They're like, they're, they're oh, yeah. sick of the middleman. Let's just like yeah. <laughs> Evil Banker Coffee Co Corporation. Um, right. But I also heard like the non-conspiracy side of it. People are saying that the salt water just erodes gas lines. And then when your gas line just yeah. can shoot fire through the house, you're fucked. Right. So yeah, it's it's rough. I, things corrode out here really quickly because you've got the trade winds and then the salt air everywhere. So like, you know, and then you take it you know, there's an, a flow or something that happens and you get the sulfur dioxide, the VOG that comes out and that just corrodes metal as well really quickly. So like mm. a lot of my neighbors who were here during the 2018 flow that was right right up the road, uh, all of their metal, even like their new shit is just completely rusted out and corroded from the VOG just for, you know, those three months I think it was flowing. Mm. What it, I'm sorry, what is VOG? Uh, volcanic smog, basically. So oh, sulfur dioxide that comes gotcha. out of the volcano. So when uh. it's active... Uh, yeah, and it could be bad for your lungs and asthma and things like that. You know, it's, I think it's acidic. Yeah. Um, so we worked on a project uh, back in 2010 that got premiered in 2014 called Here Comes Godot. I watch it every so often. 
I uh, my godson and I watch it. It's freaking hilarious. <laughs> I love the the uh, the argument scene where um, post audition, uh, Max and Anthony are arguing, and then he gets kicked out of the apartment. The struggling actor life. It's so brutal. Um, people <laughs> having a dream. Maybe I'll just go if I don't kiss you right. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't kiss you the right way. I'll just leave. Yeah. <laughs> he's like completely screwed. Now he's homeless. Um, what a funny uh, thing. And uh, all around a, a psychopathically, uh, uh, cre you know, a creative narcissist, uh, Richard Foreman, Richard Wilson. I'm sorry. Richard Wilson is his name. <laughs> uh, God bless Richard Foreman. He passed away. Yeah. And Arthur. so, uh, yeah, less creepy, weirdo theater productions in, uh, you know, <laughs> St. Mark's. Um, <laughs> let's so I want to kind of go through the process because, you know, life imitates art. And we were struggling artists post post graduating Eugene Land College at the new school. Most of us um, trying to get, uh, you know, a TV pilot going and. It was a struggle to get this thing finished and you know each each the the production post-production um so you want to kind of take through like kind of the struggles that we we went through yeah uh it was an apt title for the project i mean considering we're still talking about it to this day and still waiting to see if there's anything we do with it but uh <laughs> yeah no we started writing it in like 2009 uh early 2009 we outlined late 2008 outlined started writing it 2009 2010 is when it was finished and that summer we decided we were going to just try to shoot it with our own money i think we spent three thousand dollars on it maybe 3500 after our, everything was returned including like the rentals and stuff like that but yeah we did the whole thing hour-long pilot uh shot it in six days i believe it was either six or seven days i think less than one week um and uh it was a struggle from the get-go we had a whole crew lined up um uh, that we had through friends that were at film school and uh, everyone was kind of pitching in doing, you know, the, the best they could for no money. And then like a couple days before our shoot, the crew uh, dropped out because they got a paying gig and like, we can't tell them no, you know? And so we lost all of our crew. Uh, fortunately our DP stayed on because he was a separate friend. And so we had to scramble. We had to go rent a bunch of audio equipment, a bunch of camera equipment, uh, a number of items just, you know, last minute as quick as we could rent from rental houses in the city. And uh, yeah, we ended up having like two cameras with like formats that didn't quite match. <laughs> we like resolutions that didn't quite match. Uh, I was like shooting it uh, while directing. I was shooting B-cam while directing, while mixing audio. Um, uh, we basically just pulled in anyone we could to to get it across. And I think it still holds up because I think the writing and the performances and like even though the humor, since it's what, 14 years old now since we shot it, uh, some of the jokes, you know, are a little bit dated at this point. Uh, but some of it also sets the ground for shit we wanted to do that we never really got a chance to do uh, in the rest of the season because that was just the pilot. And like, I remember, you know, we all met at your spot in L.A. in 2014 after we premiered it so we could do some promo stuff. We shot like the suicide dinner follow up. We wrote out the Bible, made sure the Bible was good for the rest of the seasons. But we had a lot of cool ideas in there, uh, like um it's one of those things I think it took us so long to actually finish, you know, it was like five years from like writing to uh, putting out there because after we shot it, then it took, I was editing it in New York with one editor and then 
Max and I and, and Anthony started cutting it ourselves and we cut like the first half and then I moved to LA and you and I linked up and then we cut the second half with Colin. Um, and uh, yeah, such a process uh, for five years that like by the time we finally finished it, we put it out there. We did the premiere in LA, uh, the two night premiere event, which was great. We got good photos and good attendance. Uh, and then we just didn't do that much with it as far as marketing goes. I think part of that has to do with like the technical limitations and it's hard to get people to watch something that already looked dated by 2014. But I think the content, once you get into it, the content is still so strong. Um, and there's, you know, there's stuff to be said there too. Like we tackle some pretty sensitive topics like gentrification and white guilt and some other things that like really had legs to go places uh, and be, you know, both satire and like also poignant at the same time. Um so yeah, it's a shame. I, I often think about it. Um, I rewatched it recently. I shot a film uh, one year ago this week and we just finished post-production submitted and we're going to premiere at Slamdance. And uh, my, the writer and director, I was the producer, the writer and director came over and we were just like talking shop. And I was like, Hey, I have this thing. I'm going to go on a podcast and, uh, and talk about this project I did like over a decade ago. Do you want to say it so I can refresh myself? And she was like, sure. And her and her husband, uh watched it and it still got some genuine laughs you know and i asked them before and i'm like were you guys you know they both lived in new york for a time I'm like were you ever like involved in the theater scene they were like no but i think there's enough you know it, it, the stereotype of how wacky theater can be especially off of broadway theater is proliferated enough that like people don't need to be that down to earth to really get all the jokes um yeah, but, it's all uh, insular. Everything, all yeah. the jokes come from the plot. That's why I think it holds up. We're not reaching I for agree. other. Yeah. We didn't do a, a, other references except for oh, this mm -hmm. guy's work. You know, this guy's work for this person. All he's doing is building up Richard Wilson's resume. That's the only kind of inside baseball I can yeah, think of. Check off with human puppets and the cheese yeah. suit, and, and then there's like some Meisner jokes in there later. It's like, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, but yeah, it went really well um, to watch it again, you know, because it's been years since I watched it all the way through. And uh, and like even with and I just warned them, I'm like, listen, here's what happened. We lost our crew. It was technically like not up to snuff, even in 2010 when we shot it just based on technical problems, you know, problems. But the shooting style is really cool. The very cinema verite uh, and like thinking, you know, 2010, you know, it was like girls had just gotten picked up. How to make it in New York was playing. Like there was a lot of content like HBO was putting out. There was like independent New York content. Um, and the shooting style was very, you know, kind of like arrested development, I guess, early office. Not that we like aped those styles, but that just seemed to be like kind of pretty uh, ubiquitous at the time. And so it like, I think it, it still stands up today, uh, even though it like, it feels very uh, like watching everyone on flip phones and everything, you know, texting each other and stuff. It's it's very funny coming back like, wow, that, we we didn't even have smartphones when we shot this. Uh, yeah, it's pretty nuts. No, I just remember having a real real good time doing it. It was fun, you know. We're all like real good friends too. It was fun. It was a little stressful sometimes because we only had like I think we did we do a piece in Woolman Hall and we had it for like thirty minutes, like the last scene. I think we had. I'm not sure. Was that at Woolman yeah. Hall or was that a rehearsal space? I forget. I think uh, that was a rehearsal space at La Mama. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, oh, La, La Mama. Mama. That's right. Yeah. And we got <clears> upstairs. <throat> yeah. And we had issues where we had, you know, some people running sound that like it hadn't run, hadn't uh, boomed before. 
And so like we we have two different theater scenes where it's like very clearly booming the floor the whole time and like dealing with like all those audio issues and then loud batteries dying and stuff. Well, but it was it, uh, also squeaky as hell when you would walk around yeah, in that wood exactly, floor. It was squeaky, right? squeaky, <laughs> squeaky. So, you know, we did our best, but. Um... Yeah. And it holds up. And I've been thinking about, you know, where does that go from here? Living now that I've been living out in uh, in the jungle for a couple of years, uh, I pitched it to like Max and Anthony. I was going to talk to you about it. Uh, it would be awesome to do like just pick up where we left off uh, after suicide dinner and it's like 10 years later and fucking uh, <clears throat> uh, we catch up with everyone. Max has been canceled uh, because his white guilt stuff got uh, <laughs> some public notoriety and, and like blew up and he became viral and got canceled for being this white dude who does uh, <laughs> white guilt dreams. Uh, but like doesn't consult with any people of color or uh, anyone who like actually like maybe you should involve in this process if you're going to start using this shit. So he gets canceled. He's retreated to academia where he's getting like his PhD in religious studies, which is actually what Max is doing. Though he was never canceled. Uh, so he's getting his doctorate. Anthony's moved to L.A. and started to settle down. And uh, he's still like a grinding actor where he's part of like a, a local theater company. But like, you know, pays the bills with uh, with like commercial work, like Hilton commercials and Miller Lite commercials and things like that. Uh, that sounds accurate. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, you know, as far Anthony's as I know, that's what's going at, on. Uh, I mean, Groundlings is more than a local theater company. You know, they're pretty prestigious. But uh, uh, but, you know, it's funnier if he's still grinding at local theater. Uh, but he's like in a more executive role where he's like directing and like coaching and stuff now, uh, 10 years later. Uh, but he's just a grinding working actor. And uh, and. Richard uh, Wilson, or yeah, Richard Wilson. <laughs> Richard Wilson, not Richard Foreman. <laughs> yeah, the portmanteau uh, is, uh, you know, <laughs> Robert Wilson and Richard Foreman. Uh, and Richard Wilson has uh, killed himself. Uh, just like he thought he's, he killed himself uh, like eight years ago. The production uh, fell apart at the seams after he killed himself right before like opening night. And so like nothing ever came of that. Anthony and Max have a strained relationship coming out of, you know, the failure of that production. Richard Wilson is gone. Uh, and then suddenly uh, a messenger comes and arrives and meets them both at their individual max at like the religious library, Anthony, like in a waiting room for, you know, like a TGI Fridays commercial. And uh, and a messenger comes, uh, a Hawaiian, uh, like local uh, chick who I, who I think would be good to play it, uh, comes and, uh, and picks them up and says that there's an invitation in the jungle for them. And uh, and they need to come and got to figure out like what the you know additional motivation is. But the reveal is they get out to the big island out in Puna, which is like the hippie mecca out here in the jungle where everyone's off grid. And uh, Richard Wilson never killed himself. He actually escaped to the jungle and started a cult like Apocalypse Now, Colonel Kurt style. <laughs> and he's creating like it's no longer the theater of right now. It's the theater of like all time or something, you know, the theater of everywhere. The theater, yeah, and uh, and he has like a commune in the jungle, which there are multiple of, which are kind of crazy. Uh, a commune in the jungle where he's like the you know the Colonel Kurtz character, um, uh, creating avant-garde theater performances uh, out here, and he needs to bring Max and Anthony back for uh, you know for this project for a Godot project. Uh, Godot is everywhere, something like that, <laughs> and then just having them out here and them you know the struggle of whether they do it or not. Uh, but I think it would work and it, it would be kind of fun and you could take advantage of like shooting in a totally different location. Um, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, and I have plenty of gear. I have like my own camera now. I have like a black magic, uh, pro cinema cam 6k, got like a full audio setup, got some lighting gear. 
Um, so it'd be something that we could do pretty, pretty cheaply. And uh, having done this film last year, I, I know a lot of the local film community here. So it's something that I'd like to, you know, uh, workshop in earnest, but it's fun to think of Godot as like the project that never actually dies. And uh, we're still just waiting for something to come of it. And, you know, whether or not we market it correctly or not. You know, it's not just marketing. It's, um, you know, to be fair to the project, we did submit it to four or six festivals. I think we were rejected least, from, yeah. from all of them. But, you know, it that's where like nepotism really drives me crazy because, uh, and that's something I want to get into later, that um, SAG was just trying to sue all the big studios because they want to do digital actors. Like, let's say Robert De Niro dies tomorrow. Well, he'll yeah. perpetually be face swapped in, into so there's no ladder to climb anymore. So I just imagine like there's all digital AI celebrities, maybe new celebrities that are just created in the metaverse. Then you have digital writers writing scripts for the digital AI. It's like humans are being made obsolete in that business just so just to, you know, gobble up more <laughs> resources for those poor studios. And then um you know, who is this audience for? The robots making movies for each other? Right. Like what, you know, so that's- Yeah, the robots I, still aren't that funny, you know? That's uh, the one thing from AI generated comedy scripts. It's not there. There's like something lacking in like understanding the human condition and what makes something funny. You know, it can be like on a page, it can be like Ted Lasso funny, but it can't be like, like cuttingly funny. Yeah. But and, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I, I mean, shit's going to keep it but developing. But yeah, yeah, the scanning, the, the AI stuff, I mean, the concern there is also just- for you know the people who aren't the stars that they were already doing that for extras i know plenty of people who you know live on extra work you know jesse uh she got a lead she was in a hallmark movie but she also just does background work constantly and that's how she pays her bills she's a working actress that way uh and lives in new york i have another friend in la who does the same thing um and that's where it's really scary it's like you you know it's like what's the percentage of people who make under the threshold for medic uh for health insurance with SAG, it's like 70% or something like that, or maybe it's not 70%, but um, yeah, it's it's replacing the lower rungs, replacing like the floor, you know, cause it's like, you can still save the money and the loot for the, for the famous people, for the Harrison Fords, and then just de-age them or do whatever with them, you know, add on top. But getting rid of all of the logistics and the lower levels, I think is always the first priority and like scanning people and just having CGI extras to, to fill that need in perpetuity. I mean, that's what a lot of those contracts were that they scan you and they can use you forever in anything. Uh, that's pretty scary to me. I mean, you think about Hollywood and it's really is a huge industry, you know, LA is an industry town and it's because of all of the actual working collar jobs around Hollywood. And those are the ones that are going to be the first to target, get targeted with AI. Yeah. And then it'll just Harrison Ford will just license his likeness or not, or they already yep. own it. And then uh, there goes the ladder to climb forever being a working actor. And then they'll just de-age him, put him in a porno, put him in an advertisement. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Harrison Ford making se having sex with 90 of himself and then throw Dark Vader in there and then throw, you know, Robert De Niro in there and all this shit. It's like, where is it? At? But, you know, yeah, we did the kids what they want. We did everything the right <laughs> way, the traditional way where we made an independent film and we and we, you know, all pooled our what was our resources together afterward i made damien shadows that my mom hates um because she emails me all the time <laughs> saying i look like a gay loser um which is true <laughs> but uh you know that was like seven grand on a credit card that was pretty stupid you know 
And then I did it again when I made my three stand-up specials. It cost me like $16,000. Luckily, I had yeah. Colin McDowell uh, bail me out mm -hmm. of a terrible editing situation for the second time in my life. Um, but it's like we... And then I did the thing where after I made... Uh, um, at least Damien Shadows got into Shriek Fest and like crushed, like got huge laughs at Shriek Fest. Then it went yes. to go live on YouTube for no money. Then all my specials, I put in like the Cannes Film Festival, Sundance, and I didn't license, instead of doing having myself do the jokes, I didn't license Leonardo DiCaprio's asshole on my face uh, in a face swap situation. So it didn't get into those festivals. The other thing that was really weird, when I was uh, doing the application for Sundance was like 50, 40 pages, 45 pages, and like $70. It was so intense. And it was like, how many albino Native Americans do you have on this production? How many of the sound designers were transgender? How many? It's like, what does this matter? Can someone watch the content? It's like, I think it just got through the robot. I didn't check enough, uh, you know, niche okay. categories. And then I was yeah. thrown out without being watched for and ripped off for my money. You know, it's like... I think my specials, I think Damien Shadows, I think Here Comes Godot. I think the content we produce is high level. And but Hollywood doesn't even care because it's like, who how does this benefit me? You know? So I don't know. Yeah, it's it's tough, man. It's uh it's hard to make money in this business <laughs> doing your own shit. Sucks. I mean, that's what I do. I just work on other people's stuff for a while, pay my yeah. bills, go back to my own stuff. And yeah, but it's hard to like consistently do your own stuff. Uh it's tough. And it's like, I feel like, yeah, there's going to be a threshold. There's going to be like limiters that uh, on like why people select something. And um, yeah, I guess we're just not meeting that criteria right now. Or we weren't, you know, who knows with the next thing we do. But uh, yeah, no matter what, there's always going to be, you know, limiters and things. And uh, and right now it's, um, uh, well, we just, I guess we just didn't get, get the cut. But I think it, if we... You know, if we can get something together that's uh, you just get it in front of the right people. I and mean, I think that's where we like we're kind of at, at a loss last time is that we didn't know exactly where to get it. And we submitted to like general festivals and things like that. But, uh, you know, having an advocate, one thing I've learned from the film I just did is just having like some investors on board who serve as EPs, who have connections, who can help us like meet with people and connect with people. It's really helped a lot. And, uh, you know, it's helping, you know, uh, with I went to Sundance last year through one of the investors just to talk about the film. I like went there the day after we shot it. Uh, we like wrapped the production and I got on a red eye. Um, and then I'm going back this year and it's like, it makes it so much easier just to like have someone who invites you into things and says like, here, talk to this person, tell them what you're doing, do that. Uh, yeah, Cause it's so much of it is clout. Like you said, it's like, what can you do for me? And uh, people generally don't have time to actually consume things, you know, uh, give them the, the attention they're due is my opinion. So I feel like Godot, like you know, stands up, and I and I think it it has legs, uh, but it's hard to get people to watch enough. You know, it's like really getting that hook in the first five minutes, and I feel like we have it. But uh, if you just look at like our YouTube viewer count, you know, every video drops down in viewership. It's like we're losing people. But also that was part of the problem with Godot, which we conceptualized as an hour long pilot, and we shot it as fifty six minutes, fifty five minutes, uh, and then like to distribute it, we broke it up into web, you know, uh, web webisodes to just make it more consumable. But then it's like 17 webisodes of like anywhere from like four and a half to two minutes. And so clicking through becomes an issue. Like whenever I show people, I show the premiere cut, which is just 56 minutes straight through. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, 
it's it's a it's tough but then you have other people who are successful on youtube because they have like a repeatable set they have one set and then they get out there every day and i fell into a wormhole of uh nick decado avocado videos uh there's so many <laughs> independently produced documentaries where they go on youtube they rip his content they chop it up with a narrative and this person was on youtube for people that don't know, as a health advocate, uh, you know, going, hey, if you put, you know, wheatgrass in this, this is the healthiest thing you can eat. And he, you know, was super vegan, gluten free, organic, this and that, and would do like instructional cooking videos. And slowly, I th I don't know if he went to In-N-Out once. And um, then he's like, I'm going to turn. It's kind of like Richard Wilson. He turns his life into an art project of getting as fat as possible so he does these mukbang gluttony videos where he puts 40 hamburgers and an ice cream in a blender and drinks it and then starts fake crying every five seconds he's like the most popular person on youtube like i was watching some of these like fat mukbang videos he's got like 20 million uh viewers he's had two heart attacks he's 31 it is kind of like a suicide dinner uh literally yeah <laughs> so um you know, we're trying to like write funny things and do funny, you know, put up put like a funny screenplay together, old school, traditional Hollywood. Meanwhile, people are just ah, acting like a baby going around in an electric wheelchair being annoying. Huge hit, you know. <laughs> I think he got in at a good time, right? When Mukbang was taking off too, right? <laughs> I feel like with YouTube, you know, timing and placement is everything. And getting in, like you look at a lot of the big accounts, they got in right when like those niches were taking off, like gaming or like like Penguin Zero, who like had a spat with Nikocado Avocado, right? Which like his vibe is just like I think for Zoomers, he's like the cool older brother that tells you things like they are or something. I don't, I don't know. I, I never really got it that much, but he seems all right. Uh, yeah, the Nikocado Avocado thing is is interesting. I mean, it's a different type of content. And I think that's one of the things that's like important to think about when talking about YouTube is that like people go to YouTube for different reasons, you know, like I, you know, I'm on YouTube for, you know, like I follow, subscribe to some channels and do like political news on that and stuff like that, you know, looking for uh, views that, that aren't, you know, mainstream media views and things. Some people go for makeup tutorials. Some people go for gaming. Some people go for content, you know, personality content, I guess I would call it like, like avocado. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, his stories, it strikes me like having watched his stuff and like seen like, you know, some of those in-depth YouTube, like the tragedy of Nick Okado. Yeah. I think we probably watched the same like line. Right? I'm like crying. Yeah. I'm like, this is what like likes and subscribes have has turned this person into just clout shaming to destroy themselves. It's it's I've, literally, you know. The vibe I get from him, honestly, is that he's an addict and like he talks about like he was overweight before he was vegan and then he was vegan for what, like five or eight years or something like that right. uh, and lost a bunch of weight. And, and like that can always get dangerous when people do, you know, if, if you're vegan as like a diet choice uh, to like lose weight as opposed to other things. I don't know. It seems like he, watching his stuff, it seems like he's an addict that was struggling with something and finally like just gave in and that gave him like notoriety. And he realized that like, you know, he could, he could lean into it and be kind of like a drama queen and be the villain. And I think he decided to be a heel. And like, that's his, that's yeah. his gimmick at this point is that like, he's a heel. He's like engineering drama. He's like, uh, I think his whole thing, like, it's your fault. You know, the viewers, the likes, the subscribes, it's your fault that I'm fat. It's like, 
Yeah, maybe, but I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it, it seems like, like it's an addiction that's out of hand and he's rationalizing. And it seems very similar to like alcoholism or drug addiction or anything like the rationalizations that come through. And, uh, but he, it, it's, yeah, he's got that blessed curse that he's famous. He lives in like a $3 million mansion because of it. But oh, does there's something he? just I didn't a, know that. Yeah. Yeah. There's Ugh. something just super appealing about it. I think people love, I mean, reality TV does so well because people like seeing other people like break apart or, or struggle um, in like a, in a way that doesn't have to be as polished as it does with like scripted. Um, it's like, there's something about just like watching someone disintegrate. That's like really appealing to a lot of people. I mean, most of its views are hate watch views, you know, they're just like people like, watching it to like you know feel like some shame and, and disgust and like schadenfreude it's really it's interesting but that said i think it's a different type of content and i think the stuff we do and that kind of stuff can coexist and hey if his stuff is bringing more people to the platform that means there's more viewers there uh who may not you know maybe get tired of watching someone eat 40 hamburgers and mukbang himself to death <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah there, i feel there's always a positive yeah i i totally feel like the shine for it like went am I contributing to his death by watching this, but I can't take my eyes away. It is like a hate watch, but then um, he's a different case, a kind of opposite case of Andy Dick, who I've met uh, twice when I lived in Los Angeles and he was very was, drunk. Was he cool or was he an asshole? Yeah. I've heard that he's always fucked up and he's an asshole. He was drunk. It was a very quick interaction. But what I said to him was the Andy Dick show. He, he had three seasons on MTV called the Andy Dick show. The first two is like the funniest. Some of his sketches were like the fucking funniest things I've ever seen. Like he was in high school when I was, you know, 15, 16. That was, shit was so fucking funny. The third season was him starting to unravel. In 2010, I was working on the show called If I Can Dream. We were doing, uh, it was all these kids living in a house and they were all Hollywood hopefuls. And one of them was called G Gigliani Braga, who is this Brazilian model, very beautiful. And we, we went down with the crew just to give her a free photo shoot with our production. So we we're just taking photos of her on Malibu. Andy, this was not planned. I, I can't stress this enough. This was not planned. Andy Dick was passed out drunk on the beach that we were doing this photo shoot with. <laughs> and he stumbles over to her. Do you want a boyfriend? I'll be your boyfriend. And it's just like, <laughs> oh my God, dude. Like, you know, and I could only dream of all that success. News radio, all this success. You know, he like kind of lived this dream that I wanted to from coming from the Upright Citizens Brigade, coming from stand-up. He has MTV behind him. And he has, you know, he could do, Ben Stiller was his best friend for a long time. Yeah. And he just blew it from drug and alcohol abuse. Meanwhile, yeah. Nick Dicato, Avocado, his addiction is the thing that's making him take off famously while yeah, it's destroying his point. body. <laughs> right. I get, and I guess it, it goes back to that like type of content thing. Like he, uh, you know, Andy Dick was doing a different thing and then he just turned into an asshole and i think he was shitty to other people in the industry too and i think that's part of the part of the issue it was you know you're yeah. shitty you don't shit where you eat you know whereas like i get the feeling watching some of nikocado avocado stuff is that like it's kind of staged and like he's generating conflict and, and kind of faking it a little bit mm. um but uh but yeah andy andy dick i mean 
Yeah. I mean, you talk about any dick now and the first thing people say is like, Oh, that guy's a mess, you know? But even like, like he addiction, man. Yeah. Uh, he did celebrity rehab and mm -hmm. me and a girlfriend at the time who's from Topanga, you know who I'm talking about. Um, she would always go to Topanga days. Right. And so we were watching celebrity rehab. Andy Dick is on it. He's hilarious on that show. He seems genuine in wanting to recover. We, we end the season uh, a month later, a girlfriend of mine is at Topanga days and He's almost naked, completely hammered, and he slams on her car window asking for a ride <laughs> and hitting on her. Like, yeah, kid, I need a ride. Blah, blah, slamming on it almost with like no clothes on. And it's like, we just watched you, buddy. We we're crying, rooting for your sobriety. And then you you're out in public <laughs> like that? Like, Jesus Christ, dude. Alcohol is a hell of a drug, right? Fuck, man. I mean, it sounds like he needs to just pivot to having someone follow him with a camera and, and YouTube his drunken charades. And you can have yeah. the rebirth of, of Andy Dick. And you can, you can have people hate watch and be controversy. Now he's, you know, after all the millions of dollars he blew through, which, oh, my God, if I ever had $1 million ever in my bank account, I would love like a king for the rest of my life. But he's probably blown through $30 million or whatever. And now he's like living in a trailer, catching sexual assault charges. You know, it's just really? like, it's Jesus. so sad. Yeah, dude. He's like living in a trailer now out in like Sun Valley or whatever, broke. Like maybe little news radio tr residuals trickle in, but a lot of that goes right. to his ex wives and child support and shit like that. Wow. Fuck, dude. Uh um, <laughs> speaking of nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> we entered Godot, which is fucking hilarious. A level content into festivals. We don't get in because we're a, a talented cast of unknown actors. I remember Hollywood from almost my whole life was pumping out Pamela Anderson, the sexiest girl in the world. You know, Pamela Anderson. She was the hottest girl in the world for like 30, 40 years, you know? And I was in undergrad going, I think half the girls in this class are hotter than Pam Anderson. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> so the nepotism is just like at every level. And I think, you know, it costs how much money have studios put into Tom Cruise being, um, you know, a great leading man. And so once you have a bankable star, you're going to he's still doing Mission Impossible movies deep in his 60s, 70s. Who knows? That that Scientology, yeah, there might be something to that. He looks good. But right. uh I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he's a studio darling. He was, they, he even like came in and like w stepped in on the SAG case and like was trying to broker a deal or something like that. It's funny. I mean, after Top Gun Maverick, you know, it like revived the box office is how the narrative goes. Uh, yeah, that and there's like Goodwill has come back. Like Tom Cruise is like a cycle of like whether people love or hate him at the moment. <laughs> and like right now, Goodwill is back there for him. But I mean, you're to, saying that yeah. that's nepotism that it's that it's that his like cultural cachet is nepotism or you're saying that just like there's established bankable stars and, and that's the issue or you're saying like the children of of stars or the children of the industry yeah that's what i'm saying there's there's established bankable stars and it's like there's like 10 and it seems like there could be 50 years where it's just those 10 it's matt damon ben affleck keanu reeves tom cruise like those are the leading men maybe hugh jackman there's there's not a lot and so if you're like an actor who wants to climb the ladder, like my godson, he's in all the school plays and all that stuff. And it's like, I don't want to lie to a kid, but it's also like, like it could happen. Like they do let new people onto the Hollywood uh, boat, but it's 
the AI thing is just terrifying because it's like, it seems like they're just closing. If there's any chinks in the castle wall, the AI is just digitally closing them. You know, I used to think the all through like I took film production classes. I used to think, Oh, if, if I see a chink in the armor, I'm, I will throw my blade through that. That was my mentality going through dough and putting my own stand-up specials together. I will fire an arrow into the chink in the armor and it just seems like uh i don't know it's a closed system um yeah it's tough i mean i feel like hollywood's always been like that you know but uh but yeah it's difficult i mean i think the with the nepotism baby conversation too with like you know sons and daughters of of famous hollywood people i mean that's it's cool that people are talking about it but it's like that's the case with like all of society you know what i mean like doctors you know and their kids become doctors and they get connections uh through med schools and things you know what i mean like people tend to pass down wealth (laughs) generational generational wealth in all of its forms tends to be tends to be a thing and i think it's just more visible in somewhere like entertainment industry uh whereas when it comes to like elite institutions uh we don't talk about it as much or see it as much but i feel like it occurs there just as much legacy admissions things like that British royal family, Prince Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> well, he he's the most virile man in the world. You know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> they even um, use dead actors. Speaking of our friend Anthony, who uh, supports his young family with, uh, you know, doing commercials. Marilyn Monroe, they used her in a Dior ad uh, 40 years after her death, she's selling perfume, Marilyn Monroe. You know, they face swapped her into right. this. Um, Audrey Hepburn died in 1993, but they used her to sell Dove candy chocolate bars, which I'm a fan of. Um, John Wayne was used to sell uh, Coors Light in like yeah, 2014. That. <laughs> yeah. um, that's that's kind of crazy. So your image is brought back from the dead to sell a product that you may not have endorsed, you know? Right. It's I guess it's all whoever your estate is who's controlling the rights to your likeness, sell it selling out. You know, I mean that's <laughs> tends tends to be a thing throughout time too, right? The famous person dies or the wealthy person dies and everyone else swoops in to try to take a piece of that pie. I mean, it, yeah, it's kinda nuts. I think entertainment law is is dealing with a lot of this stuff right now. And I think it's a really cool field. Uh, you know, if I were a lawyer, I feel like that would be a cool, interesting, you know, place to be working on IP and things like that. And likeness um but yeah i remember that was like the big talk like you know maybe 15 years ago right after john wayne and like all those super bowl commercials where they just took dead people like brought them back and people were like how is he selling like it's like someone selling like vacuum cleaners and they're dead yeah yeah it's like yeah how, how are they how is this okay and it's like well i guess it just comes down to rights and like the fucking estate decided they wanted to make make a buck off of it uh, but I think like going forward, when people do their wills and they do, they plan estate planning, they're going to start planning likeness, uh, rights and things like that. Maybe more thoroughly because of AI, uh, being this thing, especially with deep fakes too, where you can just post it on someone else's body. So you, you know, the AI just has to do the face work and the other person can do whatever they want with their body. Mm. It's kind of crazy. I just imagine a corporation with its silver hands, they reach down through the dirt to the hand of the person in the grave they pull up his skeleton hand put a pen in it and go sign here Coors Light you know right. what I mean it's pretty brutal now I also understand that when someone is uh in a coma 
you know, the family can decide whether or not to pull the plug if this person has not signed a do not resuscitate order mm -hmm. type of thing. Um, but going beyond the grave to me uh, is interesting. When I worked for 19 Entertainment doing If I Can Dream, um, that 19 Entertainment owns Elvis. They own Elvis. Oh, nice. I think, you know, maybe the uh, Memphis mansion was having financial issues and they couldn't broker all those Elvis rights deals. And uh, 19 Entertainment was like, I'll do that. You know? <laughs> give me some Del give me some Elvis. <laughs> I just yeah, I just think of AI porn, you know, uh, John Wayne fucking Kermit the Frog, you know, pos posthumously. I mean, let the let the dead rest. Let the dead rest. Right. What does that do in the spirit world? If there is an afterlife. <laughs> is if well, God, yeah, if John Wayne is in heaven and then God like taps him on the shoulder. By the way, everyone on earth is watching you give uh Miss Piggy a rim job. Just so you know. IP rights. You know. What can I do? <laughs> the uh I saw a story the other day that made me think of the video you did for like that shorts compilation, uh, where like uh, AI generated child porn is now a thing that like the courts are having to deal with and, and try to figure out. And it's like, well, no actual children were harmed in the making of this image, but it uh. still uh, promotes this type of material. Like, where does it fall? Uh, and like, how do you prosecute that if there's no victim, so to speak? And uh, and like, where does that go? And it made me think of like your little Tammy toy doll or whatever. Uh, uh, you did yeah. a short for it, uh, which was like a, a pedophile <laughs> recovery aid, <laughs> which was like a, a, a fucked doll toddler uh, was was the joke. And uh, it's like, no, this is really helping people <laughs> instead of instead of yeah, real we... victims, they could use the doll. And it's like kind of the same the same kind of argument there. So you were ahead of the curve. I, I, I finally got my life back. It was like a yeah, cabbage right. patch doll. <laughs> yeah, uh, I got that from Vice magazine. Vice magazine wrote an article where this uh tokyo guy was making child sex dolls and his whole oh, really? thing was this is a pacification tool and i was yeah. like really that's what it's a medical device and that's when i started doing that joke in new orleans like no you wouldn't take the batteries out of my pacemaker would you this is helps me get better <laughs> um i just the insanity of the justification of evil like that and and yeah I had this debate with, yeah, oh, sorry. I had this, um, there's a comic here who's a friend of mine called Ariel Isaac Norman, uh, an Austin comic and a great person and a really smart person. Um, but she interviewed this person who's a trans, a, a trans pedophile. They self-identify as a trans pedophile. Number one, I wonder what the hormones are doing to that person's uh, motivation system, number one. Number two, I listened to this two hour interview that Ariel did on her show, Politically Non-Binary. And one thing caught my ear. She goes, I'm in chat rooms. And one other pedophile said to me, it's like, who are you talking to all day? Who are you, you know what I mean? It's like, she's in chat rooms with pedos all day, like swapping stories or whatever. And it's like, I have an idea. You ever play a little Frisbee golf? Like I got an idea. Like they're just in an echo chamber you just, of you say touch grass. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't know. I th it's, it's crazy. I think a lot of science is going to come out over the next couple of decades to um, talk about pedophilia being like a hardwired disposition to, you know, a certain sexual preference. And that's going to be tough for the courts to figure out. I think it's like, 
having you know watched my share of SVU, uh, <laughs> I think uh, it's one of those things that like is always has always been an issue in society. Will always be an issue, and may you know, maybe something that society is gonna try to figure out ways around in the future. And I think like with genetics and where where stuff like that's going, I think they're probably gonna prove that that it is you know uh, baked into your into your genes somewhere, this predisposition for how your brain works and like the chemical, like they already show that like chemical areas in your brain fire off for like the way like normal adult people, if they looked at pictures of like the opposite sex would fire off, that happens when pedophiles look at children. And it's like something structurally wrong. And so it's like, that doesn't excuse any of the actions or anything like that, but it makes it much more uh, complicated when it comes to like actually finding out that this is like, uh, you know, a disposition that's baked into somebody and they can't change. And it's like, uh, it fucks with their brain and their rationing and, and their, their reasoning and things like that. And like, how do you address that? And like, is the answer like robot sex dolls or AI porn or, or something that keeps, keeps them from acting out on real victims? I mean, cause it's like, if you just put the victims first and foremost, how do you handle something that could be baked into someone's actual brain, uh, that they can't control? But also protect, you know, put victims first and then figure out like what are ways to to help with this. And so like maybe, you know, maybe AI porn is is an answer there. I don't know. It just seems like it's not something that you can teach away or um anything like that, which I think is what makes it so scary, you know. And it's probably been very well hidden through society and people tend to, I mean, you know, that's why you see a lot of it in like the Catholic Church and things. People gravitate towards professions that like maybe with all of their heart, it's another addiction that we keep getting back to like this addiction and the psychology of addiction. Uh yeah, people try to self-medicate and try to cover it up. But if it's something that's, you know, in them as much as alcoholism could be or something, it's a lot, it's a dangerous ground, especially since other people are directly involved. <laughs> I, I like, really and think, that's not to yeah yeah to me to excuse the act at all it's just like it's complicated to, i guess to me i saw it's identical to this other thing that i saw this is that there was i forget where i saw it it's what it's like my addiction or i'm addicted to this one guy mm -hmm. only ate macaroni and cheese he's like it's so velvety it's cheesy it's satisfying breakfast lunch and dinner he ate macaroni and cheese just like Nick Dicato, Avocado was a vegan and then in and out push him off the wagon. And then, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> I just wonder, like, hey, you we put you in a room like we lock the door. We put a nice little salmon sandwich on the counter and you'll starve if you don't eat it. And then six hours later, we put, uh, you know, Kung Pao chicken or whatever on the thing or whatever, or, you know, expand the palate. I'm so lucky. And by the way, the last joke on the about the child sex doll joke, I go, I think if every ch uh, senator and congressman got a child sex doll, a lot of those kids would go missing in West Virginia. Two years. I said that on stage <laughs> two years later, the Jeffrey Epstein thing came out and Bill Clinton's on the island every day. So it's like, OK, um, I was a little ahead of the curve there. But also, um, thank God in, when I was 15, I saw Heidi Klum naked in a Sports Illustrated swimsuit. And I was pretty attracted to that adult human female my whole life, uh, you know, type of thing. So, so, so you were okay. Yeah, you I was, bang, yeah, <laughs> I was hardwired in, but I don't really have sympathy for abusers. So it's also mm -hmm. like, I just think of them, you know, just like I made fun of the psychopathy of Richard Wilson. I made fun of the psychopathy of pedophiles. To, to me, it's like your desire. It's, it's like hipsters who are like, oh, I only like this band. 
It's like the narcissism involved. Who cares? Your preferences are not your personality. What you do is your personality. So like, oh, it's like expand your palette. Expand. There's other things out there you could be focused on. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I think it comes down to whether or not it actually, you know, is something that's, you know, structurally part of someone's, you know, brain and, and genetics. And then it's just like, what do you, what, what do you do then? Like, Electroshock therapy? Electroshock right? therapy? I don't know. I don't know if it'll happen. I mean, just think about all the ways that we treat like drug abuse or alcoholism or anorexia or things like that. Like you can lock people in a room and, and try to fix it that way. But the problem is the own, per own person's body is working against them. And so, you know, and, and it affects the brain and that's the part that's going to play the best tricks on you. It's like when you're addicted to something, you know, you're fine without it for a while. And then suddenly like it starts creeping into your mind that, you know, like, oh, it'll be okay just this time or this day, like your brain starts working against you. And it's like, uh, it's fucking, yeah, I don't know. That's what makes it scary in my opinion. Like, how do you handle that in society? Mm -hmm. When, uh, yeah, I mean, we've suppressed it so far. You know, we've, we've always suppressed it because there are real children victims and people are very protective of children. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know, it's just fucking nuts. It's like, uh, it's like, how do you, how do you change something if, if someone's hardwired to do that? We've been trying to change, you know, genetics and hardwired dispositions for as long as, you know, humanity exists. People are trying to get over addiction. But, with pedophilia there's real victims and that's where the line is i think it always same thing with like you know an alcoholic kills someone with a by drunk driving there's real victims you know right, it's like right. the same way we prosec yeah. prosecute based on other addictions and you know chemical imbalances and things like that should be the same way we prosecute this um but then that's like if you have ai porn and there's no actual victim is it prosecutable yeah i don't know but then it's like the question is is that going to pacify their desires or are they going to go on the playground with binoculars and you know choose victims or, right you know yeah is that gonna yeah save them or make them more hungry i i found that when um epstein's island like the 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 list keeps coming out like every day in court documents uh you know kevin spacey you know all these people are mm -hmm. coming out in court documents it's like i feel like the conspiracy community knew about this years ago and the the mass the the, the lizard pedos who own the media have tried to push this story down and kick <laughs> it down the road as far as uh they can but um it keeps coming out but i i remember thinking that's why this deep fake shit is coming out because that's plausible deniability. Obviously, this was a commercial run blackmail operation um, where they had to have filmed and photographed everyone who went on the island. And that's when Kevin Spacey with his high power lawyer goes to court. No, that was a deep fake. That wasn't me. Right. I, you know what <laughs> I mean? I saw those two stories coming out at the same time. And I, I remember thinking, yeah. oh, that's how you guys are trying to get out of this. <laughs> it was a deep fake. I mean, I guess the flight logs and things like that, that's where the, you really get stuck. There was a physical person there. You can't deep fake in real life yet. It's not Mission Impossible yet. You can mask up. But they got to have uh, there's videos out there somewhere. That's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Like there's got and I'm wondering, I'm like 50 50 on this, if, whether Jeffrey Epstein's dead or whether he was taken by the intelligence service to go through to comb through the footage and use it as leverage in this way or that way, or like behind the scenes blackmail or use it to secretly prosecute. Like do the good guys or the bad guys have access to that 
information. I mean, at the end of the day, I think he's dead. I don't think he killed himself. I think he's dead. And yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, a lot of people say that he was a CIA agent. He was either Mossad or CIA. Yeah. And like his whole operation was because he like he didn't no one really knows you know, why he was as valuable as he was. It didn't make sense on paper. And then, uh, yeah, a, a lot of people say that he was working for Israel. Um, uh, I've heard other people say that, yeah, he was connected to our security agency. He was a spook. That's what people say. He was a, he was a spy. And yeah, blackmail was the operation. And you would just get people to uh, compromise themselves and use that to, to, you know, further his client's aims. But yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty nuts. I think, you know, w with the list that's like coming out too, I mean, like a lot of that, you know, those are all just like contact. It doesn't necessarily mean they were on the island or flew in the planes, but like some of the people we know for sure did, like Clinton, obviously, but it's like the whole like Stephen Hawking thing. Have you seen the memes about that? Yeah. That's what I was talking about. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of funny to think about, but who knows? It doesn't mean like everyone was necessarily guilty of wrongdoing, but I think a large portion of people were and i think it's crazy that we're not going to find out i mean look how long it's still what biden was supposed to open up jfk last year and he just reclosed it again you know mm. for national security reasons even mm. though it's been like it's supposed to have been open for like a decade now or something uh my yeah, question with this stephen hawking thing is it was a jet plane with an with a stair set that went down i didn't know that was wheelchair accessible i thought it had a <laughs> <laughs> if you have that much money you could probably figure out a way around it <laughs> maybe just people helping helping lift he would need a whole anyway i don't want to draw a picture you need more than one kid just to make it <laughs> make sense i don't know doesn't he need a pump i, I don't know how that works but oh <laughs> I, I wouldn't i wouldn't say he has much desire i don't know but uh I think if you're getting on a plane with a rotating bed in the back, you would ask some questions like yeah. what's in it for this person, just like Hollywood. I feel like we were locked out because there's nothing. We're just a bunch of shitty fucking kids. What? How can we help them? You know, um, we don't have blackmail footage on, you know, Iger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look at the head of Disney or whatever his name is, Mr. Iger. Right. Um, so it's like, what can you do for me today? Ugh. It's crazy. Anyway, sorry, I'm just going into a... Despair spiral? A, yeah, just a, <laughs> a shame spiral, I think. Just, right. Just, though, I, I've had a singular desire since I was two, and that was to be a functioning comedian creative. And, you know, the, when you look at all the things, it's like, do I want to sell my soul to get through those gates? Or what, what's the what's the answer? Right. Anyway. Yeah, that's tough. Um. So any uh, any final things? Obviously, I'll put here comes Godot in the show notes. But uh, how can people find Devin Murphy on the social network? And thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome, man. It's been a pleasure. It's good to see you and uh, reconnect after a couple of years. Yeah, the last time we talked was like three years ago until recently. Mm. So yeah, glad you're still doing well in Austin. Um, yeah, I am not on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Murph Diesel. That's M like Murphy. M E R F D I E Z E L. Uh, on Instagram, I don't really use it. I don't think I've posted in over two years. But uh, but that's the contact I give out to people to find me. And uh, if you message me, I will be there. Uh, but yeah, things are going well. Excited to promote uh, Chaperone, which is the uh, narrative feature film that I produced this year. Uh, we're premiering at Slamdance in Park City uh, next week or a week and a half, January 19th. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, really excited to be out at Sundance and Slamdance and uh, promote the film. Uh, check it out. Uh, I believe it's at Chaperone Film. Chaperone, like a school chaperone. At Chaperone Film. Uh, it's a great film. We shot it all in Hawaii. Most of the crew uh, was uh, uh, local to the islands. Um, and uh, it's great. It's, uh, uh, you know, hour and 50 minutes, it's about a, a love story gone wrong due to an age difference and some misunderstandings and lies. And uh, it's a great cast. Everyone's really talented. Uh, you know, you're used to seeing movies about Hawaii and it's like Aloha or some movie about like a white girl who comes out here to find herself. And it's like kind of kitschy. This is a movie that was like written by a Hawaii local um, and uh, directed. And like uh, we use a bunch of institutions in Hilo, which is you know part of Hawaii you don't usually see because we're on the rainy side of the island. But uh, yeah, a lot of local institutions, a lot of flavor. You get like a slice of life of what it actually is like to live here uh, as opposed to just, you know, a tourist uh, discovering themselves among the palm trees. <laughs> so yeah, check that out at Chaperone Film, uh, Instagram. And uh, more information to come. We're still just pitching to distributors and sales and things like that, doing the festival circuit this year. And then hopefully it'll be streaming by the end of the year. Cool. Hey, brother. Thanks. Uh, thanks for doing this. I'm going to be at the secret group in February and then I'll be in Los Angeles in April. Uh, I get little stand up gigs here and there, so it's not all doom and gloom. Sorry, I just the Godot project, how fucking funny it is. And it's uh, free on YouTube for everyone to see. But uh, just, you know, that that should have gone somewhere and maybe we can resurge it. Uh, I'm intrigued hey. by this going to Hawaii idea. I think uh, Richard Wilson could come out of the you know water with face paint. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You want to learn how to act? Do. Oh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> okay. I'll uh, I'll send you a link to uh on see on YouTube if you search CNN Cinderland like Cinder like you know fire cinders uh C I N D E R L A N D YouTube Cinderland uh CNN. There's a documentary of a commune that was done that was right up the street where like my first night here, I ended up like meeting somebody and crashing at that commune with them. And it was a nuts experience. Uh, maybe we'll talk about sometime soon, but worth checking out to get a vibe for like the kind of stuff we could do with Richard Wilson. Uh, pretty funny. Worth checking out. It's a cult in the woods. I mean, uh, theater now, cult. right now is a cult, you know? Exactly. It's very similar. It A lot of punitics uh, out here. Uh, it fits the Godot vibe, the Richard Wilson vibe very well. So uh, yeah, check it out. And yeah, let's keep talking. I would love to see, you know, catch up 10 years later. Uh, yeah, brother. Max, Max and Anthony and Richard Wilson and uh, see, see where they've been, where they've landed in 2024. All right. This has been Highway Diary episode 397 with my good buddy, Devin Murphy. Bye, everybody.